0: But uh, there's a few things I'd like to say. This afternoon when we were standing in a circle on the lawn, I was very struck by the, the sort of the quality of, of steadiness of what it takes to just do that simple practice. Which, of course, it takes through any and all of the practices we're doing here together. A certain nobility, a certain courage, a certain dignity. And I was just reflecting on the importance of our capacity to recognize in ourselves, in how we're living, how we're expressing our lives, to recognize something something beautiful, something precious. We sometimes wonder what we can trust in life and we may reflect upon it. In the Dharma teachings and the practices we engage in, we see that our body, our mind, it's not something we can always rely on to be in a certain condition or a certain way you know sometimes we're feeling tired and the brain doesn't work that well when it's tired I don't know if you've noticed that but certainly mine you know forgets things confuses things can't quite remember what it talked about the last time I talked I'm wondering if I'm going to say the same thing what Leela talked about last night maybe I'll you know end up straying into the same territory but at a certain point you're as well I just don't know so if I do, that's what's going to happen you know, we can't rely on our bodies in certain ways I was hoping I'd be able to read this uh, text because I can expand it on an iPad, it's one of the great things about technology, it's one of the great things at least, is that you can make it bigger but it's getting to the point where even when it's bigger, my eyes still aren't quite (laughs) doing the thing without these on and The great thing about these is I can see really clearly, but then I can't see anybody out there very well. (laughs) So it's, you know, bodies, this is what they do. We realise, I realise, oh, my eyesight is slowly fading. And that's the way it goes. But what can we trust in? And for me, one of the fundamental things that we can and need to learn to trust in is our own basic human goodness, the basic character and orientation of the human heart, that is actually wholesome, and yet that's not necessarily apparent or obvious. I remember, as a young man, as a teenager, in my early um, early twenties, feeling really confused really unable to make sense of what I saw going on in the world. I couldn't understand why so many things took place that I could see, and everyone must be able to see, were really harmful or destructive, causing suffering and pain to other people, to creatures, to the environment. It was obvious that so much human activity was harmful. It seemed obvious to me, and yet it went on. And when I would look, with a similar sense of confusion inside, I found at times, yeah, I was selfish. I was also greedy. And sometimes I didn't seem to care about others in the way I acted or what I chose. And it was confusing to me because I really knew also that I did care about and I didn't want to cause harm to others or to myself. And yet I couldn't quite make sense of what seemed to be happening around me and at times within me. And that was really one of the most powerful, motivating factors for me in the, the choice that I made in my early 20s to leave the professional life that I'd sort of found my way into, only just it seemed, but uh, the, the pathway that had opened up of sort of making it in the world despite the or against all the odds that that wasn't quite going to happen, it seemed to have done so. And then something in me just said no, this doesn't quite seem to be where you want to go. And so I spent some time travelling and early on in my travels I was very fortunate to have this encounter with a with a person, with a woman who um, we just passed each other. We were both riding bicycles in the South Island of New Zealand in opposite directions in the context of some long uh, journeys, both of us. I'd been on the road for sort of, I guess, six weeks by then I think. she for several months but we didn't know each other we just saw each other and smiled and stopped in the middle of nowhere and started talking and it turned out that she was the elder sister of someone I'd been to school with so we had a connection and uh, among many quite lovely things that we kind of shared and reflected on together she at one point said to me you know not everybody can see what you see And she she used a word the first time, it can't have been the first time I ever heard it, but it was the first time I heard the word awareness in a way that made sense of what was happening in that so much of what goes on, we don't quite see really what's going on. We're not fully awake to what's happening. And in that unawake condition, of course many things Take place in ourselves from our own actions and in our world from the actions of others that we see are harmful, that we may feel deep regret with regard to. So far as we become aware of this, so far as we start to actually see this and take this in, allow ourselves to be touched by it, I think it brings naturally a very strong wish to address those patterns and behaviours that are harmful in ourselves and in the world. And what it also brings for me, or brought for me also, was an examination and a questioning of, okay, so how does it come to be that I've caused harm to others, to myself? To become aware of what this human life is about, we have to look carefully in our own hearts. Because I think what we see in our hearts will tell us about life. And for myself, what happened in that, in that encounter, in that process, I, I started looking and reflecting and seeing, oh gosh, actually, you know why I act the way I do? That was sort of a question to myself, but actually, I was always, it seems, if I look carefully, trying to take care of myself or something or someone I cared for, And even in times when I did things that caused harm, at some level I was still trying to take care of something that i had made more important than that which wasn't being taken care of by the action. Do you follow that? Does that make sense? It's like our ability to disregard something in the larger picture, someone else or some part of the situation, because there's that belief or the idea that somehow... I will gain, or this will benefit, or this will enable me to take care of that which I care about. Everything that causes harm in this world comes back to that. Beings trying to take care of what they care about, but not necessarily very skillfully, not necessarily in a way that truly takes care. That truly benefits. And so there's a process that's, I think, rather helpful of self reflection, self examination, just to look and see for ourselves is this so? Because at one level, it's hard to trust in a, a sense of goodness or a sense of sort of something wholesome in a human being if what we look at and what we see is gosh, look at all the harmful things I've done in my life. And sometimes, of course, our minds tend to pick these up or focus on them. Look at the things I've done that I might feel sorry about. There's an appropriate remorse we might feel for things we've done that have caused harm to others or to ourselves. Remorse is not an unwholesome quality. It's that place where we can feel sorrow for the harm that's done. It's very different than guilt or blame or judging, in which case, or in which which is much more of a, a kind of a, an uncompassionate attacking of ourself or another as apparently the cause of the suffering or pain. To feel remorse is to actually make space for the possibility, for the motivation for learning. To feel remorse is to say, oh, I want to understand what happened here. I want to learn from this. And it's always like this. It's always like this. When I reflect on the things that have caused harm to people, I think of sometimes the ways I was with members of my family, my younger sister, I feel really sorry. Gosh, you know. I wasn't always kind to her. And, oh, what does that say about me? One could ask, what does that say about me? That was when I was young. These days too, I'm not always kind to everybody I'm engaged with. I notice it's on its go. What does that say? If I look, what I see is that something in me is in pain. Something in me is feeling under pressure to get something I need or to get away from something I fear. And in that pressure and in the not seeing it, the not understanding it fully and clearly, something comes out of the the human being that isn't as skillful as I would wish. And so looking and seeing that, oh, there's this pain that goes on and the wish to escape from it, that is actually what causes the harmful behaviour. And a kind of a blindness around what's going on and not fully seeing that these actions that cause harm don't cause don't bring ultimately bring well-being they appear to in the moment of course we don't always think all that through as i'm doing it now it happens much more instinctively reactively but there's this caring that it comes from being able to see ourselves and see others in that way starts to make a real difference to how we live our life how we relate to our own hearts and minds and bodies and our experience. There's an image I find useful and reflecting in this territory. And it's, uh, it's something which one, you could just imagine this scenario, if you, if you like to, while I'm describing it. So maybe you're just going for a walk one day in the woods. And as you're walking along, you see a small puppy by a tree. And because you quite like small creatures and puppies, you reach out to stroke it. And it bites your hand. And it sinks its teeth in, really. And imagine what your response is. I know my response bad dog, teach you a lesson. You know, probably the urge to strike it probably arises. Probably, I hope I don't actually do that, but the urge would come for sure. It's bitten my hand. And I was being nice to it. And then in that moment, you look carefully and you see that its foot is caught in one of those spring-loaded traps that people sometimes put in the woods to catch creatures. What happens to your response in that moment? That bad dog response goes to, oh, wow, we see what's happening. It's in pain. It's actually desperately crying out for help in a, not a particularly effective manner. It's not necessarily going to get help from me by biting me. Yeah? But it's in pain. And the response changes straight away into, want, of course, to you know perhaps remove my hand from its mouth, from its jaw, but at the same time to remove the jaws from its foot, the trap from its leg. That's a natural response. I think we'd all have that response in that moment. Maybe we'd want to go and have a word to whoever put the trap there if we could find that person. That will be coming later. And we can understand that Yeah, it's not in the nature of a puppy to want to bite us unless it's in pain. We could perhaps have that reflection. But that reflection needs to go really deep in us because we can't always see the trap. We can't always see. So imagine we're walking in the woods, same thing, same scenario. We've forgotten what happened last time. Reach out, puppy bites us. And it's standing up to its shoulders in autumn leaves. You can't see its legs. You can't see its legs. But in that moment to know, what would it take to know Its foot was in a trap. We'd need to know that it's not in the nature of creatures, of puppies or any other, in fact, to attack in that way. Unless they're in pain, unless they're in fear, unless they're under pressure in some way or form that they can't bear. Whether it be hunger, whether it be fear, that's mostly what brings it. To see that and to see all beings in this way, but particularly to be able to see ourselves. To see, oh, yeah, look, the things I've done that may have caused harm. They've been my own misguided attempt to take care of myself or others. That's what it is. It's not some evidence that there's something not okay about our heart. I don't think anyone at the very core of their being actually really wishes harm on others except insofar as we somehow have come to believe that that will serve the welfare of what we care about. And so, at one level, there's this seeing of how we are in the world, and how we are as a species in the world, as human beings in the world. What an impact we've had on this planet, and are continuing to have, and aren't necessarily, it seems, so many people able to really see that. There's a blindness that goes on. There's a blindness, it seems. And to be willing to look and see what's happening, what's going on. How is it that we don't understand? How is it that we haven't yet learned? And Essentially, In this practice, we're invited to look and see what happens, what plays out in our experience. You know, we can't help but make mistakes in life. Everyone does it. Everyone does it. In fact, it's necessary. You know? It's necessary. We haven't finished the journey of our learning to be human beings yet. And learning inevitably involves making mistakes. It's the only way. We grow. There's a lovely story about a, um, a Zen student of some years who had a very um, rare and fortunate opportunity to visit the, um, the, the, the highest, most senior master in the tradition of the Zen, Zen practitioner's lineage. And um, so he, he came along to the, to the meditation interview and he was a little bit sort of scared because the Zen master was known to be pretty fierce. And um, so he he came and bowed down in front of the the master, knowing he could just ask a couple of really brief questions. He wouldn't have long. And, And she's sitting there like a mountain, just looking at him. And he says, Master, Master, can you tell me, what's the most important thing to cultivate? And she looks at him. She says, good discernment, wise judgment. He says, oh, yes, thank you, thank you. Yeah, discernment, wise judgment, yeah, yeah. Good judgment, yeah. That's great. Uh, oh how do you how do you develop that? How do you cultivate that? Master Huh. Experience. Oh. Oh, oh, of course. Experience. Experience. How do you get experience? Bad judgment. (laughs) Lack of discernment. You see how that's inevitably the process? All the mistakes we've ever made in our life, everything that we have not yet seen clearly is the basis for the possibility of learning. Rather than some evidence of failure or limitation, it's the basis of learning. So we come to meditation and sometimes we can hear the instructions many times, but we still kind of find ourselves struggling with the process it takes time to learn what it means to do this practice in a way that truly serves our well-being. But we have to, I think we have to, it's really important, it's really helpful to be able to come back to that basic intentionality that we have that brings us here, that keeps us here. In the face of all the, at times, chaos and challenge, the the caring that we have for our well-being. We wouldn't be here without it. You would not be here. You would not have stayed without that. You could not have. This would make no sense. It doesn't make that much sense anyway, it seems. It would make no sense without that, to be doing what we're doing. To reflect on, to discern, to recognize and to honor the attempt to care for what we care about. At the heart of all our actions, This is inherent. This is fundamental to the nature of what it is that we are. It's not something we need to make happen or produce or develop. But it's not the same with wisdom. Wisdom is not inherent in that way. Wisdom is something we have to develop. We have to learn. We have to cultivate. And this is really what we're here to do. So one of the things that we can pay attention to in this particular realm in terms of being able to recognise, to honour and to to begin to more deeply and fully trust in the, the goodness of our hearts, of our human lives, of our beingness, the goodness of it, to see how our tendency when we engage in the world of experience, of action and interaction, we tend to focus in a certain kind of way. We tend to pick up in a certain kind of way out of the range of information and feedback and stimulus around us certain things with regular enthusiasm and dependability. We tend to notice the things that seem to be not right, the things that are not okay, the things that should be better about other things and about ourselves. Do you recognise that tendency? how well-developed and strong it is. And in one sense, it comes out of a basic survival instinct to look for danger in case something's going to eat me. But in this regard, it's actually really unhelpful to us. There's a, um, I read a, a quote from um, the author, Kurt Vonnegut, giving a um, what's called a commencement speech to the graduates of one year at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. So it's a very prestigious... Um, American sort of uh, university, I guess, Um, and he was giving this list of sort of suggestions of all these really wise and useful things for young people starting out in life, and one thing he said really struck me. He said, forget all the insults you've ever received, remember all the compliments, he said, and if you can figure out how to do this, tell me. (laughs) Because it's so hard for us to really let in, and to really include fully that which is worthy of honour within ourselves. I mean, I've had the experience on a retreat before, um, you know, within, I don't know if it was within sort of 20 minutes of each other getting notes on the board, one of which says, oh, thank you for your instructions, they were so helpful, please tell me more about you know what this practice is, you know, and then... Another note saying, could you shut up in the meditation? You know, pretty much like that, you know. Probably slightly more polite, but the the tenor was clear, you know. And which one sticks? Which one do we remember, you know, in that kind of situation? It wasn't on this retreat, don't worry. (laughs) The tendency we have to pick up the negative, to focus on the negative, is something actually really unhealthy and unbalanced. I remember once um, being struck by how powerful that tendency is when I was um, I was living in America and working at a retreat center there, Insight Meditation Society, and we we had a staff trip out to the beach one summer, and I was lying on the beach in this glorious sunshine with my you know wearing my swimming costume. Um, TOGS, as we call them in New Zealand. I'm not sure what you call them here, but anyway. Um, And like every square millimetre of my body being bathed in this warm, lovely sunshine, you know, experience, apart from one square millimetre where a fly was biting. And it was really interesting to see how hard it was to feel all that pleasure that was happening all over my body, acres of it, compared to that one little point of discomfort. And how the attention wanted to go there, when actually there was so much more going on. That tendency to contract, that tendency to focus around the difficult, the negative, is also shown in how we tend to configure, easily tend to configure, often tend to shape the sense of self that we hold, the way we perceive and relate to what we believe about ourselves. So, one of the things I think that for many people, when we come on a retreat, when we hear the Dharma teachings, that it's slightly paradoxical, but I don't know if you've had this experience, it's certainly the case for me, to hear someone talking about suffering and all these difficult things and say, Yeah, it happens. And there's actually something that's actually rather nice about it. It's kind of like a relief to hear it being acknowledged that, Yes. It's so, this does take place, because it's really easy for us to somehow come with the idea, and let's maybe say a little bit where we get there from, but we come with the idea it seems that somehow things being difficult, painful, there being struggles or challenges, that somehow it shouldn't be like that, and the reason it's like that is to do with me. That somehow I've done it wrong. That somehow I'm no good. Somehow I am not able to somehow just be happy and at ease and relaxed and joyful all the time. And that's somehow a personal failing on my part. That we kind of somehow get this idea because this, this image, this idea that's projected is that, well, if you just, you know, did it the way it's supposed to be done, you'd be happy. You know, look at the people on the advertisements. They're happy. They've got the best... You know, training shoes or nicest dishwashing liquids, and you know, they're obviously happy. So, why not me too? You know, I even got the dishwashing liquid, still not working. You know? And those are, of course, I'm um, just being sort of with more superficial things, there are much deeper, difficult things that we may encounter in life. And yet, the tendency easily can be to somehow. Imagine or believe that this could be avoided if I just did it differently and got it right. And so when the Buddha talked of dukkha, he talked of suffering, he talked about this reality, there's something really important to contemplate here. Not just the fact that it's so. He talked about birth, aging, sickness, death. I mentioned that a couple of nights ago as in a way the reality of bodily life. It has these dimensions, these aspects. He also talked about the heart. He talked about human beings, as human beings, we experience sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation, and despair. And you kinda of hear it, you think, Whoa, sorrow, grief, pain, lamentation and despair. You know, they didn't mention that on the mat- on the on the write up for the retreat, you know, that wasn't what was advertised here. You know, come along, you can have some of this. We might not have come if they warned us, you know. And yet we encounter it, and we think, but surely there's some way for life not to include that. And if if we reflect on it, just as with the body, being born, it will age, it will become infirm, it will ultimately die. It's for sure. We don't maybe argue with that. We can get it that that's going to happen. It's not our fault really that it goes that way. But with the harm, actually it's not so different in a certain way. Because, and here's how I understand this, how it can make sense to me in a way that feels compelling. If you love something in this life, something or someone, at some point you will be parted from it. And that will be painful. That will be grievous. That will be really difficult. That will be sad and sorrowful. If you love something in this life, or someone in this life, by accident, by choice, by by death, we will be parted from that which we love, and those we love. That will happen for sure. And that will be painful and difficult for us, deeply so. And if you don't love something or someone in this life, if you live your life without your heart loving something, that will be painful. That will be Sad, that will be grievous to your heart. And I can't see any other options there. If we love, there will be pain and sorrow and loss. And if we don't, there will be pain and sorrow and loss. And so, what that says is that this is part of the natural condition of the human heart. Not all of it, of course. There is joy, there is delight, there is the sweetness of contact with what we love and what we treasure. But there is also that tender territory. And what we easily tend to take out of this reality is somehow the sense that all those things that are difficult are somehow because of me. Everything that's wrong or painful or difficult is somehow my fault. And it's a very deeply rooted idea for many of us, at some level I think for all of us, And we tend to put so much pressure on ourselves because of that. So much pressure to try and fix ourselves, to try and fix our experience. Not just because it's painful and uncomfortable, which of course is one reason we try and fix it or change it or control it. But actually more deeply painful is the conclusion that we draw from it that says that there's something wrong with me. There's something that's not okay about me. That it's somehow my fault and you know, the truth is that it's not your fault. It just is not. And we don't get that at some level. We, we can hear it, and we might kind of know it, but it's actually hard for that one to go all the way in. It's not your fault that life is the way it is, that your life has been the way it has been, and will be as it is. And so what is it to just contemplate that, to let that perhaps settle in the heart? Maybe. And this is actually a useful way to phrase these kind of reflections and contemplation. Rather than trying to get into an argument with some part of me that thinks it is my fault and trying to convince it that it's not, that won't work. It's not about having an argument. But just to bring in a question, just to bring that, maybe it's not my fault. Just notice what that feels like. Oh, maybe it's not my fault. Just leaving some space, leaving something open for that possibility. We can so easily compress our hearts when we don't feel in touch with a sense of appreciation for ourselves, a sense of honouring of ourselves. We can kind of doubt our capacity to do what we're doing in a situation like this. You know, there's this experience that happens that gets reported again and again of someone sitting in meditation and just struggling with aching knees and busy mind and drowsiness and restlessness and all of that. And then at some point, you know, I give up. I can't do this. The person looks up looks around, everybody else is sitting really calm, really still. The person thinks, ah, oh, they can all it. Wow, it's like, you know, 50 almost fully enlightened Buddhas and one overcooked vegetable. <laughs> yeah. And of course, having come to the convincing and compelling conclusion of the actual truth, this is how it is person just kind of gives up, sits there. And probably a few moments later, someone looks over at them and thinks, wow, they're sitting really still. They're not moving. Their practice is really deep. Wow. You know, we have these ways we project ideas about what's going on. Joseph Goldstein, one of the senior teachers in this tradition, and someone I feel very fortunate to know both as a friend and a teacher, he he once observed, you know, he said, if students knew what was going on in my mind while I was leading these sittings, they wouldn't come to my retreats. It's like, and, and you know, he's a venerable practitioner, and really wise. So if we, if we reflect, if we contemplate a little, this, these, these tendencies that we have, what we notice, this, it's kind of like blame, judgment, self-criticism. It's kind of trying to push away something we find uncomfortable within ourselves. Some level of experience or some perception that we're forming that we find it difficult or painful to hold, to handle. And the, the sense of judging, of blaming, it always has that pushing away effect that pushing away at something. So we feel under pressure from the inner reactivity, the inner pattern. And yet it's really interesting, although we can identify with the idea that something's wrong with me or that I'm somehow the one to blame here, those views, those positions are something we've learned. This is always the case. They're not actually our thoughts even. Even though they might be arising in our mind, we learnt them from someone else. In fact, when I suggest this to people, mostly people nod and they know straight away who they learned them from. You know? Do we know? Do we have some idea who we might have learned judgment and criticism from? We learned them from the people around us when we were little, most of us. Whoever those people were, we learned The rejection of experience. Because when we showed up in a way that they didn't like, they let us know. One way or another. And you know, those people who we learned it from, they learned it from someone else as well. They're not theirs. And they learned it from someone else. It didn't start somewhere. Certainly not with us. Nowhere that we can put our finger on can we say, this is what caused it. There are patterns and tendencies that when they're not seen, simply get replicated. But they don't speak the truth, they're just expressing a reaction and a rejection of something more simple and immediate, the fact that things aren't always comfortable and easy for us. So for a while I remember making a practice for myself of just bringing this contemplation to mind. Because what we notice often is we project that judgment into the minds of other people. We imagine other people have these views about us, you know, whether it be our friends or our teachers or our companions on a retreat who must have noticed, you know, we think. And so for a while, I remember I would practice, I would just say, give up believing your thoughts, that's me, about what you think other people think about you. When I would say it like that, you realise how much fantasy is involved in those concerns. My thoughts about what I think other people think about me. Whoa. Actually, no. There's not really much point in giving too much weight to such thoughts. Because actually, we don't know what's going on out there. And as one teacher said, I never knew who this was. I just heard this person's quote. um, said, um, what other people think about you, it's none of your business. <laughs> really interesting, isn't it? It is. It's their problem. It's, bus- it's their practice to deal with that. That's their thoughts, they're not ours. And then, this other quote I heard once um, you would spend a lot less time worrying about what other people think of you if you knew how little time they spent doing it. <laughs> And it's interesting again, isn't it, if we reflect with some humility, actually the truth is we too spend most of our time thinking about ourselves, And we can be absolutely assured that so does everybody else. They're not thinking about us, they're thinking about themselves the same way we are. And so then actually what we need to take care of is the way we're thinking. We need to take care of our own process of thought. And one of the things that's important with that to understand is that with these strong negative thinking patterns we can sometimes encounter that may be harsh or judgmental towards ourselves, sometimes we need to actually be quite courageous in the way we face them. It's not just always sufficient to be aware of them, to name them, to acknowledge them. Sometimes we need to actually say in a clear inner expression, no, this is not helpful. And embodying a little bit the quality, as, as Leela was speaking last night, um, with that, that sort of that kind of more fierce quality of protection. That um, was it, Mahakala. No, Vajrapani. Vajrapani. Okay, there's a, quite a few of those fierce characters out there, but Vajrapani that Leela spoke of last night, and the sense of when judgment, when criticism arises, at some level, there's something in it that's trying to protect us. That's the interesting thing. When we're hard on ourselves, it's almost like we're trying to push or batter ourselves into being in a condition in which we feel better or safe or well in some way. It's a strange paradox, but that's how it works. Does that make sense? Do you follow that? It's like we're trying to put pressure on myself to be different than I am because if I'm different in that way, then I'll be safe or then I'll be loved or then I'll be good or whatever it is I wish or need to be, huh? But actually the effect of it is, is, is actually painful and it doesn't help in that way at all. So sometimes what we need to do is say no, that's not helpful. In the same way if we heard someone being harsh and critical in an um, unkind way to a child, we might, we might not be able to in a situation, it may not be a possible thing, but if we could, we'd naturally want to just step in there and say actually no, that's not helpful. Sure, you can correct the behaviour, but there's no need and there's no value to judge and to criticise or to attack a child for doing something maybe that was foolish or harmful even, but that obviously they wouldn't have understood what they were doing or the danger in it. And so one of the things I've been exploring and quite sort of not, not infrequently these days sharing with people in, in terms of practice is a, is a mudra, that you sometimes see the Buddha expressing. And a mudra is a posture, a shape in which a certain quality is embodied. And here the Buddha is sitting in what's called the touching of the earth mudra, where he's just affirming his, his faith and his right to practice and his right to awaken. And something from his, the story of when he was challenged to just say, yes, I have the right to be doing this practice and sitting here with the aspiration to awaken, that's one mudra. This other mudra is called the abhaya mudra, the fearless mudra. Now, Actually, the Buddha usually does it with this hand, but I'm left-handed, so this is the hand I do it with. And it involves the hand somehow just in front of the shoulder and the heart for me, or there if it's that hand, just here, upright and firm. And if you're interested, you could just see what it's like to do that, to bring the fingers together, place the hand here, and just put it here. And so it's useful if the fingers are connected, and you can just have a sense of how the palm, if the, the space of the palm is extended upwards, so it's not collapsed, it's quite firm. I don't know if you can see how that is in the hand. And see, with it the, there, just find out where's the place. It might be a bit more here, a bit more there, but if you just, just see where it feels naturally. There. What does it feel like? What do you notice when you put your hand here? And Anyone who wants to say, you could mention it. Speak out. Strong. Strong, yeah. Protective. Protective, yeah. Stop, yeah. Yeah, all of those. Yeah. And it's interesting that those words come very clearly for most people. Not always. It can be different. We might feel something else and whatever you feel, that's what's going to be true for you. But that quality that it expresses, strength, protection and stop, it's actually a wholesome expression of the underlying energy of taking care and protection that comes out sometimes in an angry or harsh or critical way, but in its skillful expression is able to say stop or no in the face of harm or aggression. And it's the soft part of the hand, it's not aggressive. So it's not going to hurt anyone, but it can say stop and it can say back off if you need. To. I'm not doing that to you. <laughs> yeah, it can say back off. And it's actually quite an interesting thing to explore because what I find is it actually allows that kind of aggressive or angry energy to get channeled into a wholesome shape or form in which one feels the protective quality. And sometimes that can actually help us find that orientation inside when faced with strong or negative sort of um, judgmental patterns in the mind to just say, no, stop, that's not helpful. So we're not rejecting it, we're not judging it, but we're recognizing it's not useful here. It doesn't actually serve us. And one can likewise do this in the face of something coming from the outside. And it's a kind of universal symbol. It's interesting. In all sorts of cultures all around the world, you find this expressing that quality of stop, of no, and of protection. And when you feel it, it's clear. Oh, yeah, that's what it does. It allows us to embody the quality. And there's lots of ways we use our body to support the heart and mind. So when we sit upright, the uprightness supports the uprightness and brightness of mind. It's part of why we do it. It's why we encourage sitting upright rather than lying down unless the body is injured or unwell, and then lying down might be needed. So the sense of embodying a quality of fierce, courageous, but also non-aggressive protection. It's the fearless mudra, the abhaya mudra in the Pali. So part of our practice as, as people, as human beings who are interested in developing the heart and cultivating our lives and living a, an awakened life, embodying an awakened life we actually need to practice paying attention to what's wholesome in our own life in our own actions in our own behaviors the qualities that are noble that are worthy of valuing just as i've suggested in the evenings um to just take a moment to really honor the goodness of one's practice and of one's companions too but to honor the goodness of one's practice i know for some of us that's not easy to really let that in to really honor The goodness of what you're doing here. The nobility. Do you know, although of course these days many people engage in meditation and retreats are much more sort of well populated than they used to be, for sure. But the number of people who will ever spend even a single day in silence engaging in committed, dedicated spiritual practice, let alone three or four days or a week, the number of people who will do that in life is a very, very small proportion. A not insignificant one, but a very small proportion. To really be able to honor that, irrespective of what happens in your meditation, just that you're here, is something quite remarkable. To be able to honor the acts of generosity and kindness that you've expressed in your life. And there will be many, many, many. The good qualities, the patience, the courage, the loving kindness, the compassion, the integrity, the dignity that do arise in your experience, they will be there at times, of course, what we tend to do is notice all the times when they're not there, the mindfulness, the presence, you know how easy it for us, how easy is it for us to really honor the moments we're awake and fully present, as opposed to try and add up all the moments when we're not yeah. Can we really just honour what's here that's worthy of honour? I sometimes have thought, you know, that it would be much easier to get people to read out a list of all the things that need improving about themselves. And we'd do it it, you know, be a bit uncomfortable, but most of us would be willing to do it. You know, come up with a list of five things that we could do with improving and tell the world. But to tell everybody else about five things that were really wonderful about ourselves, that would be probably much harder, wouldn't it? And it's kind of a shame, really, isn't it? Because to allow ourselves to see what's wholesome and what's good is really essential. So we, as our practice, can take on an intentional turning towards what we value, what we appreciate. And this quality of appreciation in what's around us and what's in ourselves. It's something very powerful. This quality of appreciation. The Buddha spoke of it as the condition as the quality that's the the proximate condition for the arising of loving kindness. When we attend to the things that we don't appreciate, when our mind is focused in that way, and that's its habitual orientation, what we tend to find is judgment dissatisfaction. And there's plenty of raw material for that, it seems. But when we turn our attention consciously and intentionally towards that which we care about, that which we appreciate, that which we value in ourselves, in a situation, in another, that naturally brings a sense of kindliness, of loving kindness. And there's a a reason we train our attention. We're working with our attention, training our attention, because we see that the untrained attention follows habitual patterns that tend to reinforce negativity. We see that. It goes towards what hurts, decides it doesn't like it, says, this is bad, or or I am. But when we train the attention to notice, actually, oh, look what's all so lovely. Look what's beautiful. Look what's actually sweet here. Not only trying to grasp it, or take hold of it and keep it forever, not in a kind of trying to deny that there are those things that are difficult and those things where we do need to learn and do need to grow, but that we can actually allow that quality of appreciation to come forth. I mean, I always think I get a much better deal, and Leela, likewise, than most of you, because we get to look at all of you, Um, whereas right now you you only have one option, and, you know... um, I see so much the sense of, wow, these human beings. Look what they're doing. Isn't this amazing? Isn't it incredible that you don't just get up and walk out? <laughs> really? Isn't it incredible? I couldn't give a talk unless you all sat there. It would be pointless. <laughs> would it? You, someone got some music out and you started dancing. And it would seem like a preferable option sometimes, wouldn't it? What is it in us that keeps us, that holds us, that supports us in this? There's something remarkable going on here. But we almost too easily take it for granted. And so what happens, that quality of appreciation is something very powerful when we turn towards it. What we see is it's not just it's the proximate condition for the arising of loving-kindness. It's why we attend to what we appreciate in someone or ourselves as a basis for practicing loving-kindness. But in, 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 the, in the English usage, it has three particular meanings. And the first meaning is that there's a sort of a valuing of something, isn't there? When we appreciate something, we value it. And that's perhaps the most common meaning. But it also means understanding, doesn't it? When I appreciate something, oh, I appreciate, means I understand something. Yeah? And those two go together. Because when we really understand something, we inevitably appreciate it. We inevitably see its goodness, its value. And that appreciation comes from understanding what's going on in the human heart. I was uh, very touched to be given by a a student who'd been on a three-month retreat here and who I'd worked with quite a lot over that time a few years ago. She gave me a um, a a beautifully hand-calligraphied little sort of saying, I guess, that that she'd written out for me. And it said, you may have heard it before, it said, there isn't anyone you couldn't love once you have heard their story. And for me, very beautifully capturing that sense of, oh, yeah, if we really understand how someone came to be as they are, we're going to love them for sure because we're going to see that in that situation we might not have come out that differently. We get that. That we see that understanding and appreciation go together, understanding ourselves and our struggle, and yet the underlying wish for happiness that's so natural and so beautiful and so right. That brings appreciation, valuing. And the third meaning for appreciate, when something appreciates or is appreciating, it increases in value. So when we can actually see the value through understanding, that enhances, that amplifies, that increases the value of something. So something like your investments appreciating. Investments don't have feelings about what's nice. They get more value. And we actually, in self-appreciation, in the practice of that, there's a way in which the value is enhanced and amplified. To recall our moments of restraint, of patience, of kindness, of courage, of generosity, of just willingness to start again. You know, someone wrote a note. Can you remind me how to start again? And I thought, oh yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Start. And actually, I don't have much more to say apart from sorry. I can't remember who wrote the note now. Um, and I think we thought we'd try and answer it in the morning instructions, but uh, you know. How to start again? Well, just start again. Yeah? (laughs) That's it really, isn't it? But we need to remind ourselves of where we're coming from in the heart of it all. And this process and this practice of turning with appreciation towards ourselves, honouring what's wholesome and what's good in our lives and our actions and our practice. And being really clear about the need and the importance of saying no and really taking care to protect ourselves actually from those patterns of criticism, of negativity, to actually say no, that's not helpful. This is something that's really of value in the journey, really supports us in the journey. And there's a way in which we can understand this as a a rediscovering, as a relearning of something beautiful, something that we are. And I'd like to finish with a poem by Galway Canal that speaks to this. It's entitled St. Francis and the Sow. He says... The bud stands for all things, even for those things that do not flower. For everything flowers from within, of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely, until it flowers again from within, of self-blessing. As St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch, blessings of earth on sow. And the sow began remembering, all down her thick length, from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops to the spiritual curl of her tail, from the hard spininess spiked out from her spine down through the great broken heart to the sheer blue milk and dreaminess spurting and shuddering from the fourteen teats into the fourteen mouths sucking and blowing beneath them. The long perfect loveliness of Sows. And so may we all come to trust deeply in the fundamental goodness of our human hearts. May we remember the the genuine loveliness that abides within us. And may we live with courage and loving kindness amidst the challenges of this world, for our own welfare and for the welfare of all beings.